0: And you'll notice next week, there are only seven verses in the psalm. so I will only be up here for about ten minutes, that's good. Amen. And then the following week, I'll be here for an hour and a half, because it's 35 verses. <laughs> okay, Psalm 66. Now look at the superscription there. It's... Uh, the writer of the psalm is not identified. So it could be King David, could be anybody else. We don't know who wrote the psalm. David did not write all the psalms. He wrote maybe you know, 75 or 80 or 90 of the psalms. Then somebody else wrote the others. But it is written to the chief musician, which means that this chief musician who works in the uh, temple is to put these words, the music, and portion out the music, Say this portion will be sung by the choir, this portion will be sung by the congregation, now we all join in, and so on and so forth. And then notice after that word, those words to the chief musician, it says, a song, a psalm. Look at that. That's like saying, you know, a song, a song, or a psalm, a psalm. It's uh, basically the same words. So what you have in this Psalm 66, Are two songs. And we don't know if they were originally two different psalms, and then when the canon of scripture was put together, you see when David and the others wrote these Psalms, they didn't all go together right away. Somebody had to collect them and put them together into a songbook. Whether they took the two Psalms and combined them into one, we don't know that. But anyway, you're gonna see two different songs here, okay? The first song is divided into two parts. It's a corporate song or a corporate psalm, and that goes from verses 1 to 12, okay? 1 to 12, it's a corporate song, and it's divided into two parts. It's a call for the nations corporately to praise God. And that's like verses 1 through 7. And then it's a call for God's people to praise God. But the thing about that psalm, that two-part psalm right there, is it's a corporate psalm. And then the second song or the second psalm goes from 13 to 20, verses 13 to 20. And that is an individual psalm. And you'll notice immediately in verse 13 it says, I will. Do you see that? And then I will. And again in verse 15. I will in verse into verse 15. I will. And then the middle of verse 16. And I will in verse 17. I cried. Verse 18, if I regard. You see all that? So you have two psalms. A corporate psalm and an individual psalm. So let's look at psalm number 1, part 1 here, in psalm 66. The call for the nations to worship God. Look at verse 1. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Old King James said, make a joyful noise, all ye lands. And for some reason, I'm reading a New King James, they decided to change that. I like the word noise, that's fine. Uh, And I like all ye lands, but they changed it to make a joyful shout to God, all ye earth. Uh, Sounds a lot like Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise, uh, all ye lands, you know. Uh, But anyway, this is more of a modern translation. Now notice... Who is to make the shout, it is all the earth. This is a shout that the nations, a shout, and it's directed toward God. You see that? That they are to make, they're to praise God. It's a call for the nations to worship God. Right now, make the shout now. Who? All the earth. Well, how are you to do it? Look at verse 2. Sing. You see that? It's not just a shout, it's a, actually a song. Sing out the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Now remember, this is a; these are instructions to the nations of the earth. Uh, they are the pagan nations, the heathen nations that follow other gods. It's a call for the nations to come and worship the one true and living God. Most religions of the world do not sing. <coughs> they chant they cut themselves you know they they dance uh, they beat their chest you know all those kinds of things but Judaism and Christianity are singing religions and it's very unique and so what the instruction is is for these pagan nations to change their worship and come and sing and praise God that's how they are to worship him now What are they to say in their singing? Say to God, look at verse 3. How awesome are your works. That's the subject of their song. That's the subject of their prayer. How awesome are your works. The old King James says, how terrible are your works. And uh, this is a description of God intervening on behalf of Israel... When they have to fight battle with, the, with their enemies, and God intervenes in a miraculous way. Like parting the Red Sea or doing something like that there. <gasps> and it's what defeats the nations and brings them into submission. And so the subject of their praise is God's great works. How awesome are his works. Now This next section, in verse three, I could use my imagination, and imagine now the choir starts to sing. And here's what it would say. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. See that? Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. You notice that this is now, not the writer telling the people to sing, this is the writer now speaking to God and saying, maybe in some sort of the choir just singing to the congregation and they hear these words. Through the greatness of your power your enemies shall submit to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. If that makes sense to me? This is how you're supposed to read Psalms. You're supposed to, you have to look at tenses. <laughs> is it a present tense? Is it a past tense? Is it a future tense? Very important. You need to look at pronouns who' who's being spoken to and spoken about and then you need to notice who's speaking. what's the voice? And in verses one through 3a, you see the psalmist is speaking to the nations and calling them to worship the one true and living God see, and tells them how to do it. but then right in the middle of verse 33, it's like the choir comes in and starts saying. It. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing the praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Now, notice the verb there is shall. They shall submit. You see that? They shall submit. They shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing. Uh, so, the call in the beginning of the song is for right now the nations to worship God. That's the call. Do it and do it now. The choir comes in and says, and guess what? One day they will. They shall do it. Even if they don't heed the words of the psalmist now, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that is yet in the future. Now we also see the word name Name is mentioned for the second time. You see, right at the end of verse 4, they shall sing praises to your name. In the middle of verse 2, sing honor to His name. Uh, it's not just directed to God, but they are to bring in God's name. God cannot. God's name was not known until God revealed it to Moses. Remember Moses encounters God in the burning bush? He said, who are you? And God said, What? I am that I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm the one that's going to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. I am the Redeemer. This is His redemptive name. His name is Yahweh. And one day, all the nations will be worshipping His name. God is not to be worshipped as an unknown God. Remember Paul on Mars Hill? They had a statue up. And the statue, written on the statue was... To the unknown God. The God without a name. In case we missed one, this is we want to get him in there. And Paul said, I want to talk to you about this God with that you don't know, that you don't have a name for. Boy well, has a name. And he's raised his son Jesus from the dead. Paul said. So what we have here is he says, you need to come and worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God who has a name who Reveals himself and redeems the world. So then at the end of verse 4, you have the words, Selah, which means what? Pause and reflect about it. So that's what we need to do. We need to take a moment and just say, okay, look at the nations around us. Are they worshiping God? No. (laughs) But one day, everyone will worship God. That means there's an end game And those of us who are worshiping God right now will worship Him then, and we will see the nations submit to God. So we should be reflecting on these kinds of things. Now we come to an invitation in verse 5. An invitation. The psalmist says to the nations, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His doing." toward the sons of men. Come and see. And uh, of course, what he's saying is, see it in your mind's eye. You know, he, just, he doesn't say, come on, and God will do a miracle for you. Get the whole world together in one little spot. No, he's just calling out to them and saying, I want you to see this in your mind's eye. God's awesome works. Okay, And he speaks of God's past works. Notice that the awesome works were toward the sons of men. Do you see that? That's not believers. These aren't the sons of God. These are the sons and children of men. God has done awesome things that were seen by pagans, by heathen in the past. And they're to see it right now in their minds eye. Can you see things that you did in your past right now? In your mind? Sure you can. So, that's what he's calling them to do. Reflect on these past events. Well, what's one of the awesome things that God did? Look at verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land. And they went through the river on foot. That's a past event. Of course, this is speaking of the opening of the Red Sea and the exodus. That is an awesome event that he's calling the people to, to think about and to see in their minds Up, you know how awesome that was? We take it for granted. We hear the story of Moses every day. We think this. Ah, he yeah, opened the Red Sea. Because, you know, we think of it. In terms of Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston with Moses. And if you've been out to Universal Studios, you've seen how they did it. Is that so awesome at all? And, and in the movie, it only takes about ten minutes in getting across the Red Sea. Do you know what it is to evacuate two and a half million people. Think of a hurricane and evacuating a city the size of Houston which in 2012 within the borders of Houston had 2.16 million people. And a major hurricane is going to hit and they have to evacuate. Well, in fact, a year or two ago, they were told to evacuate when a big hurricane was coming. My son was in town, he decided not to. But a lot of people, a couple hundred thousand people got on the road, 45, and tried to evacuate. Well, what happened? They were sitting for 13 hours. Now that's the cars and modern conveniences and roads. Can you imagine two and a half billion people facing a sea, and God opening the sea, holding it back for two and a half million people to evacuate? You know how long that would take, and the whole time holding back the Egyptian army with pillars of fire so they couldn't catch up with with the exodus. That's how awesome this is. We know, we can't imagine how awesome that is. And so he says, uh, they were a little closer to it, weren't they? If this was written somewhere around a thousand, and the exodus took place just uh, 200 years before or something, a few hundred years before, they were. They could remember these events. Their parents and grandparents talked about these events, and so he tells them to remember that because it was against the heathen nation that God performed this. So they would all stood back and went. <gasps> While well, the Jewish people fled from Egypt, and then look what he says in verse six. Therefore, we rejoice in Him. Or, there we, they, excuse me, I'll read it again. There we rejoice in Him. Look, there we rejoice in Him. Now you have a present tense, don't you? Beginning of verse 6, you had a past tense. He told them right now to think about this past event, and now He says, there we, we people, rejoice in God right now. Because it's like they're participating in the event right there in their minds. And the people in the congregation... Are seeing the event and they are rejoicing. Oh, praise God! You know, they rejoice in the Exodus every time they ate a Passover meal. <coughs> Remember when God said, "You're to eat a meal every year to commemorate this event." Every time they eat a meal, right then when they're eating it, they're rejoicing in the event that took place. Hey, you rejoice in the cross and the redemption that Christ you know brought for us. So. This is what he's talking about. He's calling the nations. It's an invitation for the nations to do something right now, presently. Come and see. Okay. But they're to look back on a past the event. Now look at verse 7. Or verse 6. I guess I didn't... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just skipped over to a different... Psalm. That wouldn't be too good. You wouldn't know what I was talking through. about. Look at verse 7. He rules by power... What? Forever. Forever. Never gives up never gets off his throne. His eyes observe the nation, nothing ever escapes him. He observes your enemies as well. He knows all the shenanigans that go on, all the plans that go on in the back rooms. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. And uh, this is uh, maybe the choir singing again, but it's an instruction. Uh, don't allow the rebellious. Probably the warring nations exalt themselves. Even when they win a battle, they would exalt themselves. He They were saying, don't allow that to happen. And then he says again, the next time the words say law, and we're to think about God, how awesome God really is. The Lord will not tolerate rebellion. His works are awesome, and He will intervene. Okay. So, verses 1 through 7 are a corporate song to the nations. Okay. Now, we move to the second half of Psalm 1, and that is a call for God's people to worship. Now look what it says in verse 8. O bless our Lord, you peoples. And this now refers to the people of God. And make the voice of His praise to be heard. In other words, uh, sing and sing out loud. Make the rafters in the church shake when you sing. Who keeps our soul among the living. And that word soul doesn't mean our, sort of the soul that we think of. It just means keep us among the living. Keep us alive. Who keeps our soul among the living. He keeps us alive. He does not allow our feet to be moved. So what he does is he protects us and he preserves us. He keeps us from dying. He keeps us... On course. He doesn't allow our feet to be moved. Again, a reference way back to what Psalm? Psalm 1, remember? Like a tree planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. So, what we have is that here's God who protects his people and he keeps them in place. Israel is never going to be put, is never going to be extinguished. No one's going to defeat Israel to the point where there's no longer. They're no longer in existence. He keeps Israel alive. Look at verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. Now notice he's starting to address God at this point. In verses 8 and 9, he addresses the people. Oh, bless our God, O you people. See that? He's addressing the people. Now he addresses God. For you, O God, have tested us. You've refined us as silver is refined. You know how he keeps his people on course? Here's how he keeps his people on course. He allows us to go through testing and trials. Just as silver is tested. Just as silver goes through the fire. And when you want to get pure silver, you put all this stuff in the fire, and all the dross burns out, and what's left is sterling silver, pure silver. And that's what God does. He puts us through a trial. He puts us through tribulations. He burns off the dross, and the only thing that remains is the real McCoy. And that's what he does. He puts Israel through the fire. And those that are real believers in God, guess what? They remain believers in God. And those that are the dross, those who just say they believe in God, turn coat and run or they deny God. So what we have here is the fact that we are put through trials. Okay? Look at this. You brought us into the net. You allowed us to get trapped. Okay, look at this. You laid affliction on our backs. You put burdens on our backs. Now what he's describing here is he's describing how in the past uh, they became slaves. They, were, they became subject to, to Egypt and other countries. And uh, what happens is that the afflictions and the burdens are on the back of the people. Notice he says, you did it. You see that? He blames God. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You caused us to be fettered as slaves. It's God's doing. This is how God tests you. He's the one that puts you through the test. You don't like that. You don't like the God like that. But He's the one that puts you through the test. The scripture says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, and tempted by Satan. Who drove Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit was God's doing. And God puts us through trials and tests. Not because we're bad. Was Jesus bad? oftentimes we say well why is this happening to me I must have done something wrong no not necessarily he's testing you not to break you down but to prove that you're the real McCoy because he's not going to leave you in that trial he's not going to leave you in that tribulation he's going to bring you through the trial and through the tribulation and look what it says in verse 12 you have caused men to ride over our heads Notice again, it's God's doing. you see that? You put masters over us. That's what he's saying. Men over our head. Now, literally, it could be you put men on horses. <laughs> and here we are working the field, and you put men on horses. You put men in towers. You put men in platforms who are over our head. Uh, you've given us bosses who are over us. But whatever it is, it means that we have been under the authority of masters. And it's God who did it. God is the one who led Israel into Egypt and allowed them to become slaves. Look what else it says in verse 13. We went through fire and through water. Literally. Hebrew children in the furnace that's literal fire. Israel going through the Red Sea, that's literal water. You can interpret that literally if you want. But... One thing it's describing is persecution. It's describing a trial going through the fire, going through the water. In fact, when you look at fire and water, you're looking at two extremes. In other words, what he's saying is, you put us through the wringer from one end to the other. We experience every kind of persecution and trial that you can experience. The water is wet. And the fire's dry, and people have been burned at the stake, and they've been drowned for their faith. And he's just saying, you know what? We have gone through a full range of trials from one end to the other, from water to fire, and you can't get any more extreme than that. And again, it's not necessarily because you've done something wrong or there's sin in your life. You have to be very careful regarding what you believe in these situations. But Job went through the fire and he had And not sinned. His friend said, now Job, you know why you're going through this? Because you got sin, you know. And God basically rebukes Job's friend. Joseph went through the fire. He was sold by his brothers. But what Because Joseph was a sinner, was it? Sometimes He allows you to go through the fire so that when you come out, you have a testimony that you were faithful no matter what. Sometimes He allows you to go through a trial because so you can relate to other people who have been through trials and you can minister to them because you know what it's like. They've lost somebody, you've lost somebody. You know, they've been persecuted, you've been persecuted. Sometimes it's just a, when you get out of there... Just praise God. Yeah. But there's reasons. And we don't understand all the reasons. But one thing we do know that when we come through the fire successfully, we'll be as pure as gold. Irresistible. We will have assurance that we're God's job. God, because He just didn't leave us there. He brought us through the trial. And so that's what I think verse 12 is saying. Because look what it says at the end of verse 12. But you brought us out. You see that? to rich fulfillment or rich abundance. And did He bring them out? Yes, He took them to a land of milk and honey. A land of abundance. And that's, God doesn't leave you in the trial. So, we see that God has done several things. You just look there, you can see the you there. You've tested us in verse 10. You've refined us in verse 10. You got us into a trap in verse 11. You put burdens on our backs in verse 11. You caused men to rule over us, verse 12. Look at that. But then, that's not the end. End of verse 12. But you brought us out. You see that? To rich fulfillment or abundance. So we go from misery to mercy. And when we do that, we've been tried by the fire and we have a short for God's children. You never know that you have faith until you have to exercise the faith. You never know whether your faith is real until you've been through the trial and you have to exercise that faith. Anybody can have faith in good times. It's the faith that is tested, survives the true faith. So, that ends what we're gonna call the corporate psalm. A call to the nations to rejoice and praise God and a call to God's people. Praise God. Now we come to the individual psalm. And it's a call for an individual to worship. And notice the intention of this individual. I'm going to call this the individual's intention. I will. Look at this. So here's his intent. I will go into your house. That would be the temple. Or the tabernacle that's written by David. I intend to go into your house with burnt offerings. Offerings were voluntary offerings. Uh, they could be given, made for just about anything. Uh, but his goal is to give something to God. Okay. I will go into your tabernacle with an offering. And he's going to give, bring the best offering that he can to God. Look what else he says. I will pay my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth... <coughs> Has spoken when I was what? In trouble. You see that? I'm going to give burnt offerings in the house of God, and there's the a second thing I'm going to do. I'm going to keep or pay my vows which I made when I was there In trouble. So, what we have here is a situation where the writer got in trouble. And he said this, God, if you do this, I promise I'll do this. Did you ever say that? If you get me out of it, then I will. He's made a vow, a promise, when he was going through maybe a trial, maybe a war, a battle. And he said, if you do this, I promise that I'm going to do it. Do whatever, whatever the vow is. Maybe it's just to make a burnt offering, but he made a vow. And many of us have been through a situation like that, and we haven't kept that promise. Just think of a time when you got into a pickle, and you said, God, if you get me out, I'll do this. I'll be a missionary in 10 bucks or you You're still here in the prayer I want you to know it's not too late. (laughs) 10 buck 2 hasn't moved (laughs) if you do this I'll do this well guess what he has and you haven't but it's not too late to keep your vow now so that's what we should do and you know what you promised some of it has to do with monetary some of it has to do with service some of it has to do with voluntarism but you can still keep your vow right now and then he says in verse 15, I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals. In other words, I'm not going to get the old lean ones that are starving that aren't worth anything at the market. I'm going to get the fattest animals I can with sweet aroma of rams and I will offer bulls and goats. And evidently, this is what he promised. I'm going to take the best of my flocks Animals on my farm, and I'm going to pick out the absolute best that I can make. You know, half a million bucks on, and I'm going to just give it all to you. Say a lot. it? Think about it. Think about your situation. What battles you made? Okay. And now we have the invitation, just like we had in the first psalm. Here's the invitation: Come and hear, all you who fear God. I will declare what he has done for my soul what he has done for me. Now the first invitation back in verse 5 says, come and see. This one says what? Come and hear. This is an invitation for the people to come and listen to the writer's testimony. He plans now to give his testimony how he got into a mess, into trouble, he made a vow, and he has paid his vow and how God's come through. And this is going to be a faith Boosting testimony, he's inviting all the people to come and hear, and that's what we should be doing when we are find redemption in Christ, and God brings us through a crisis. We should tell somebody, and we should give our testimony. And then he says in verse seventeen, "I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue." He says, "You know, I prayed and I cried out for help, and now guess what?" I praise Him. Prayer and praise go hand in hand. And so you shouldn't be praying and have answers without giving God the praise. He says, and here's the famous verse that we all know. If I regard iniquity in my heart, remember this one? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Hear." How many know that verse? You've heard that one. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear. Well, guess what? Guess what that means? It means if I regard iniquity in my heart... The Lord won't hear. That's a principle. It's a truism. But that's not all it says. If it stopped right there, that would be it. But look what it says. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly the Lord what? Has heard. You see that? But certainly the Lord has heard and has attended to the voice of my prayer. And so, in essence, this is a declaration of innocence. If I had were, gone through the trials because I was a sinner, and I said, help, guess what? He'd say, help, tough right? <laughs> you got yourself into this mess, get yourself out. If I was a sinner, he wouldn't have heard, but guess what? He did hear, therefore I'm what? I'm not responsible. I had a pure heart before God, like Job. See? And so this is his declaration of innocence. He attended to my voice, the voice of my prayer. So, this is important for us, that when we get ourselves in the real pickles and real messes, because of our own sin and our own iniquity, God is not obligated at all to answer those prayers. Because we've entered a covenant with God, which said we will obey. And God said, if you obey, I'll come through. And when we don't obey and we're sinners, he's not under any obligation to hear us and he answer that prayer. But we should be, if we have a clear conscience, and he doesn't mean if I if I sinned. He says if I regard iniquity. Did you see that? Not if I if I commit a sin, it's what? If I regard iniquity. If I give it, if I take pleasure in it. He's talking about it you know, calculated sin and manipulation and we all sin. That's not what he's talking about. But if you regard it, if you hold on to it, if you get yourself in these messes because of some ploy, sinful ploy, he's not obligated. But he says that's not the case. And therefore he ends this psalm with a doxology and says, Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. See, this is based, that word mercy there, that's that's one of those covenant words. And God says, you know, if you obey me and keep my covenant, I will show you mercy. But if you regard iniquity in your heart, then I will not answer. So, if we calculatingly sin, he doesn't answer. But if we are obedient to the covenant, He does answer. And so this morning, as I was going over the lesson one more time, I was thinking, I've heard something like this before. So I got on my cell phone and looked up some scripture very quickly. And of course I came across 1 John three twenty two. Immediately, here's what it says: Whatever we ask from him, we receive. Whatever we ask from him, we receive, because we keep his commandments and do all things that please him. See, there's that's the solution. He answers. Why? Because we are obedient to the covenant. We keep our end of the bargain and he keeps using Next week, we'll pick up at Psalm 67. Lord, help us to put these principles into practice. Help us to realize how often we quote verses glibly from memory, don't even understand what they mean in their context. Help us to be people who recognize that in the past you've been awesome, you've redeemed us, you intercede for us and intervene for us. And Lord, we in return praise you. We mix our prayers with our praise. Oh Lord, help us to be true to the new covenant that Jesus